received his PhD from the University of Oregon, both in philosophy, a member of the Evangelical Theological Society, the Evangelical Philosophy Society, and the Society of Christian Philosophers, Dr. Douglas Grotice has dedicated most of his life to defending and advocating the Christian message as rational and true. Most notably, he's served as a professor at Denver Seminary, among other institutions, and as a writer as well. It was, in fact, at Denver Seminary where I had the privilege to learn from Dr. Grotheis and sometimes to be also graded harshly. <laughs> but he was ever gracious with me, and he helped me not only become a better thinker, but I like to think that he also helped me become a better Christian man. His ministry has had a great impact on me and many others around the globe. He is a gifted author, and some of his more notable books are Christian Apologetics, which in fact have right here. And uh, I believe this is on its newly revised edition, and my well-worn copy here still gets used very much, and it's a phenomenal book. I do not always know how somebody is capable of writing a book so thick. Um, some of his other books that you may have heard of or, or read at some point in your life are Unmasking the New Age, and since it's a little bit of show and tell for me, this is one of my favorite books that are more, is more recent to him, and it's Philosophy in Seven Sentences. His most recent book that came out this year is a new book titled Fire in the Street, and I believe I have an image of that there. And uh, I encourage you to encounter some of his writings because they're really, really good. And if you are troubled by how much I quote C.S. Lewis, I like to also credit that to Dr. Grotheis after taking one of my favorite classes in seminary, the philosophy of C.S. Lewis, which, by the way, our class was almost always lit by candles. <laughs> and it was just a, a great experience. Uh, so I want to thank you, Dr. Grotheis, for being here with us today, uh, for sharing with us what God has put on your heart during this Advent season, and specifically during this theme of hope and what it means to hope. So if you would, please give a warm welcome to Dr. Douglas Grotheis. That introduction was way too long. I was bored halfway through it. <laughs> well, let's, let's pray briefly. Lord, we thank you so much for this season of hope and remembrance and expectation. We thank you that you are God with us. And we pray you would be with us as we look to your word. In Christ's name, amen. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, Isaiah seven fourteen. I think it's a good question to say, where is God this Christmas? Now, we know that he is with us, and if we are followers of Jesus, that he is in us, and he gives us hope. But as we so often say, sometimes in the rush and busyness of this season of buying and worrying and decorating and so on, uh, we sometimes forget the whole meaning 
of Christmas. And it's easy, even though God created the world, sustains the world, given us his word, to not properly attend to the Lord. And even worse than that, when you think of where is God today, this season, where is God in the godlessness of so much of our society? Where is God when there is so much abortion, disrespect for human life, gender confusion, homelessness? How many of us have seen homeless encampments in the Denver area we never saw before? In the growing addictions from various drugs, in the racial tensions, in the increase in crime. And I think sometimes we cry out with Isaiah from chapter 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. So Isaiah gives us so much hope about Emmanuel, and yet he was a man who cried out from the depths of his heart over the evils in his own day. So how can we be aware of the brokenness, the fallenness, the sickness, the evils, the injustice of the world and continue to have hope in our God? And this text helps answer that for us. It's an old story from the great prophet Isaiah, which helps us to remember who God is with us. And I confess that the holidays are a little tough on me, um, It goes way back, actually, to the loss of my father. He died in a plane crash when I was 11 in 1968, and it was right before Thanksgiving, November 21st. I remember going to Thanksgiving dinner with our friends we always celebrated with, and Dad wasn't there so long ago. And so sometimes I find the holidays to be a little sad, But I take heart in the truth of God's word, which is far greater than any sorrow or any loss I might ever have. God is actually supernaturally with us, despite the evils of our society, despite the sickness, despite the troubles, and despite our own sin, because he is our Savior. And it's encouraging to know that God is with us. I think of the whole idea of being with This is true of God. We know this from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God. So we see that even God is a witness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he desires to be with us. And during times of struggle, sickness, loss, we desire to be with trusted friends. In times of illness, we want to be with skilled physicians and nurses. We want to be with sometimes just our pets who God uses to comfort us in many ways. Being with is so central to life. In our joys, we want to be with people for birthdays and Thanksgiving, and we want to be with people in their struggles. So let's look at this passage give you some context. This is the great prophet Isaiah, who was used by God in the 8th century BC. He's sometimes called the prince of the prophets. The book of Isaiah has been called the fifth gospel. 
because of its many references to Jesus Christ. Isaiah called for justice. He lamented injustice. He is beloved for many things. I'd say most of all for his prophecies of Jesus, who he said was a wonderful counselor, Prince of Peace, chapter 9, and the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53, which we will come back to. But in this passage, we're looking at what Isaiah says about this coming one, Emmanuel, the virgin-born Emmanuel, God is with us. Now, first of all, I want to talk a minute about what is a prophet. There are many people who claim to speak for God who don't, who are false prophets. In fact, John says in 1 John 4, there are many false prophets that have gone out into the world. And the way you recognize a true prophet is that that prophet confesses Christ has come in the flesh. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is our Lord and Savior. So a prophet is an oracle of God who speaks God's holy truth in a timely manner. Now, prophets can foretell the future. They often do that. But prophets also, you could say, forthtell. They speak forth the word of God to their generation, as well as to subsequent generations. Isaiah, we'll come back to this, had a profound vision of God. You might remember as holy, holy, holy. That was a crisis in his life, in the beginning, in many ways, of his ministry. But what is the immediate situation? We won't read the passage, but Isaiah 7 through 14 speaks of a man named Ahaz, who was the king of Judah, and he was facing a very difficult military situation of hostilities against him. Aram and Ephraim were allied against him and wanted to take Jerusalem. Now, this is fascinating because Ahaz, who originally received the word that we just heard, was an evil king of Judah. You don't find him in Hebrews 11 as one of the heroes of faith. He was an evil king of Judah who became king at the age of 20, reigned for four years with his father, Jotham, who was a good king, a righteous man, from 735 to 731 B.C., And then he ruled for 16 years on his own, from 31 to 715 B.C. But we find out that this man practiced idol worship and sacrificed, excuse me, and practiced sacrilege in the temple of God. And if you want to know his resume, read Isaiah chapter 7 through 10. So Ahaz is upset. He's worried. He's not a godly man. Verse 2 of chapter 7 says, So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So he is worried about the invasion of his land and the loss of his rule. Now God called Isaiah to give a word to Ahaz. Verse 4, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart. The hostile nations arrayed against Ahaz and his people will be turned back, at least temporarily. And the Lord spoke this to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. And strangely, Ahaz doesn't ask for a sign, even though God promised to give him 
the most amazing sign you can imagine. But nevertheless, God still says this. Or this is Isaiah speaking to Ahaz, and Isaiah is the prophet. Hear now, you house of David, it is not enough to try the patience of humans. Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. So Isaiah seems to be saying, Ahaz, why didn't you ask for a sign? The Lord said he would give you one. So you can see that the Lord is not exactly pleased with Ahaz, but he still speaks to him. So who is this Emmanuel? And this is where things get challenging to understand the immediate situation and then the situation going into the Messianic age when Jesus comes to us as Emmanuel. And Kevin gave me some texts that I could preach from and I thought, well, I've never preached on this text. It's a classic text. It has to do with the virginal conception of Jesus, the virgin birth, the supernatural nature of Christ, and I've written so much about Jesus throughout my ministry. I'll choose that one. And then I started studying it and looking at the different scholars and their different views on how this is fulfilled in the short term and the long term, and I thought, I wish I'd chosen another passage. (laughs) Not a good thing for a preacher to admit, probably. You all want to go home now. But I did really study it out and think about it and work on it. It did not in any way challenge my conviction that we serve a Savior who is born of a virgin, by no means. But the greatest academics will disagree a little bit on how this all works out. But let's take a look at this. As I said, Ahaz was not a righteous ruler, but God still spoke to him and encouraged him. All right? And God comforted him through a promise. There will be a sign. That means God's going to do something that indicates his presence and his power and his goodness. There'll be a sign, not something natural, but supernatural. A virgin will conceive. Now, the Hebrew word for virgin is Alma, and it means a young unmarried woman, probably a virgin. Now, there's something called the Septuagint, which is a collection of Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible, And when the Septuagint translates Isaiah 7.14, it does use the Greek word that means virgin, specifically virgin. Okay. Now, who was this? Because the word is given to Ahaz, and Ahaz died a long time ago. He was an unrighteous man. So it's given to him. So in some sense, it is fulfilled in his own time. So in chapter 8, we learn of Isaiah's uh, second son, who seems to be referred to as a kind of Emmanuel. And that word Emmanuel is used twice in Isaiah chapter 8. I would call this a weak fulfillment of the prophecy. You know, prophets foretell, and they also foretell. So they speak of the future, and they also speak truth to the present. Now, notice the promise is addressed to the house of David, not merely to Ahaz. And I think that's where the messianic significance really comes in, because it's the house of David, and Jesus comes from the house of David. That's his genealogical heritage. So it extends well beyond the time of ancient 
Judah, and Israel into the Messianic age and to us. Matthew 1 and Luke 1 tell us who the ultimate fulfillment is of this prophecy and this sign. So let me read you from Matthew 1, 20 through 23. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, see that David reference, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. That's what his name means. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, and that's Isaiah, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And then Matthew adds, which means God with us. And the Greek word is parthenos, and it clearly does mean a virgin. So this means that Jesus was supernaturally conceived as a sign without a human father through the work of the Holy Spirit himself. This is not any kind of sexual act. It is a miracle. And this is far greater than what Ahaz expected or experienced. Because you have what I'm calling the weak fulfillment in terms of God fulfilling his promise to Ahaz to deliver him. And then you have what I'm calling the strong fulfillment. It's kind of a double fulfillment coming to Jesus, our Messiah, who saves us from our sins. Not simply saves a king from a difficult situation, an unrighteous king, but who saves all those who trust in him and forgives their sins. Now, as a Christian philosopher and apologist, I am concerned to defend those Christian truth claims that may be challenged or people may be skeptical about. And I have two pages on this in my big apologetics book, and I'm so ashamed of Kevin because he doesn't have the second edition yet. I'll have to give him one. By the way, I love Kevin. He's a good man. He's a good student. He still owes me a paper, but we did pass him anyway. Uh, so I'm, I'm really happy to be here with Kevin. But let me get to this. We have good reason, first of all, to believe there is a supernatural God who can work miracles. It's all kinds of reasons from history and science and philosophy that we are not alone, that we have a creator and a designer. And I've written hundreds of pages about this. Don't worry, I'll stop at this point. So if there is a supernatural creator, then that creator could speak into history, could act through the Holy Spirit to supernaturally conceive in a virgin's womb. And that's what we hear. Now some people say, well... People made this up a long time later just to make Jesus look better, to look supernatural. But we have to remember that the Jews, even though they had Isaiah 7.14, were not expecting a virgin-born Messiah. They didn't quite see it. And it's not just obvious when you read it in that particular text, in the context. Although that word, Alma, can mean virgin, it just wasn't part of their awareness at the time that the Messiah would be virgin-born. So this is a, a new idea, and it's a kind of startling idea, isn't it? 
And the story itself is nothing like the pagan stories of miraculous births, whether this is a Buddha or some mythological figure. The best explanation is that they recounted this as a fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14 as being a supernatural conception because that's what happened. They were historians, Matthew and Luke, and they recorded what happens. And it perfectly fits the, the larger biblical doctrine of incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is, God took on a human nature without ceasing to be God. And theologians, I think, have rightly said that the virginal conception of Jesus, the one who saves us from our sin, indicates that he didn't inherit original sin, that God made a special entrance of himself into the world as a man, and this indicates that he is different from all other people. And we know from many biblical texts that Jesus did not sin. He was perfectly righteous in his obedience to the Father. So Jesus' virginal conception uniquely brackets him off from all other humans as a fulfillment of prophecy and as one who entered this world in a way that no other human had, without ceasing to be divine. So let's talk about God with us. Often we might think of God with us despite us, despite the world. Why believe that the creator of the world is with us when the world seems so out of joint and confusing and sad? Well, we have very good reason, but we have to call it to mind. And this holiday season is a tremendous time to call to mind the great promises of Scripture, those that have been fulfilled at the first coming and those that will be fulfilled at the second coming. Now, remember that in the original context, God made this promise of military deliverance to the king of Judah, who is an ungodly man. He was not righteous. He didn't understand the full significance of God with us. But nevertheless, God offered help. Now, how much more... Should we be encouraged in the truth of Scripture and receive comfort knowing that while God was with this unrighteous man, how much more is he with us if we know Jesus as the one who saves us from our sins, as the Messiah, the line of David? Jesus, the name means he will save his people from their sins, as Matthew tells us. So we have access to a greater sign than what Ahaz received. God is with us despite the fact that we are sinners. Now let's go back to Isaiah chapter 6. And I want to read Isaiah's encounter with the living God because God being with us as sinners is no commonplace. It's nothing normal. It's exceptional that a holy, holy, holy God would make a way for us to have fellowship with him. Something dramatic and profound has to happen. So let me read this from Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. This is Isaiah speaking. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah doesn't even know how to continue. He's undone. He's amidst a people who speak unclean things from unclean hearts. And he is a man of unclean lips. So how can he endure and survive, let alone prevail or be a prophet in the face of God? Holy, holy, holy. It's only when his sins are atoned for, when they are forgiven. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim, it's an angel, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. It is a remarkable image before Christ came to die for our sins and rise from the dead, of atonement, forgiveness, restoration. Isaiah later said this about the one who would come, Emmanuel. This is in Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. Such familiar words, but profound. But he, the coming Messiah, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How much more blessed are we than Ahaz, who was an ungodly king over Judah, who nevertheless heard the word of the Lord and was given a blessing? He was delivered from military enemies for a time, We are delivered from the penalty of our sin. We are delivered from the power of Satan over us. We are delivered from hell. How much more are we blessed than old Ahaz? We know the full significance of this sign. A virgin-born Savior will come, has come, who saves us from our sins through his sacrificial death and will come again to finally deliver his people into the new heavens and the new earth. We can know that this God is with us in spite of ourselves, in spite of our doubts, in spite of our impatience, in spite of sickness, in spite of the ungodliness in our world. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good, as Isaiah said in chapter 5. God is with us. Let me read from Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And he rose from the dead for us. And he lives for us. And he lives in us. This one who came supernaturally into the world to save us from our sins. We're in such a better place than Ahaz. We know Christ as Savior. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the whole Bible to draw from in our knowledge of God. 
Let me return to something I skipped over as I conclude from chapter 7, verse 9. This is something Isaiah said to Ahaz, and Ahaz didn't have a good heart. He didn't even really receive this. But we, at this Advent season, can receive it if we trust in Emmanuel, God with us. If we know the living Christ, we can respond rightly to this. So Isaiah said to Ahaz, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And really, I don't think Ahaz did. But God was reaching out to him, challenging him. And we can stand firm in our faith. And we can stand in the midst of of sickness. A child becomes sick and there's so much fear and concern, anxiety. And we have loved ones who have died. And the anxiety, the godlessness of our culture... You see, it's not our faith that is ultimately important. It's the object of our faith. It's the one in whom we trust. Emmanuel, God with us. The one who came into the world through the Holy Spirit supernaturally. The one who lived a perfect life and healed the sick and cast out demons and died to atone for our sins and rose again from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father and sent his spirit to be in us. He is with us in spite of ourselves, in spite of everything. So when God seems distant this Christmas, he isn't. Remember the supernatural virginal conception and birth of our Lord Jesus. It is a sign, a sure sign, that God is with us and for us, no matter whatever happens. Can you say amen? Amen.